Well, it's good for me to be back with you all here at Anderson this morning. Uh, It has been a long time since I've been with you on a Sunday morning at Anderson. Brian and I are swapping campuses, so he's over at Southwood uh, preaching this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Blake Jennings. I'm the teaching pastor over at the Southwood campus. Uh, I realize, man, it's been some months since I preached over here. Uh, My life has changed pretty dramatically since last we talked on a Sunday morning. It's changed because of these guys. Uh, Julie and I had twins about five months ago, Luke on the left and Gracie on the right. Uh, This was taken on Friday evening. We went to the George Bush Presidential Library, all those blue bonnets. We're really excited. We took our kids out. They're actually sitting in this little basket so crazy cute. Um, and we took all these pictures of the kids, really excited. I have all these pictures on my computer now. Uh, it's a little ironic to me, though, that I'm sharing this picture with you guys. I remember being a single man some years ago, driving you know, down the highway and seeing all these parents pull to the side of the road and, and take all these kids out of their cars and matching outfits and truck them through the flowers and set them up and take pictures of them. And I remember thinking, man, that's lame. <laughs> That is not at all what I want to be doing with my life, trucking the kids into the flowers to take pictures. And and here I am, everything's changed. I became a dad and now I couldn't wait. As soon as the flowers started coming out, I was already planning. When can we get the kids out to take pictures of them in the blue bonnets? It's remarkable to me how much your life changes when you become a parent. How much the things that you value change. Many of the things that I thought were cool as a single man now are insignificant to me. Many of the things that I thought were lame as a single man now are awesome to me. Uh, Many of the things that were somewhat important to me as a single man are are now vital to me. They are essential to me. I'll give you an example. One of those things that was somewhat important to me as a single man was my prayer life. I I knew that I should spend time in prayer with the Lord. Uh, I, I didn't always do the best job, but I tried to spend time with him. Prayer was significant to me. But then I became a parent. And now I have these two kids watching me all the time, learning from me, imitating me. And let me tell you, now the value of prayer in my life has skyrocketed. The importance of my prayer life is shot through the roof because I have these kids learning from me all the time. That's why Julie and I have already begun to pray with our kids. Before they go to bed or at the dinner table, we pray with them and uh, they don't understand a word we're saying. They don't know any of the theology behind our prayers, but that doesn't matter. That's not what it's about. Julie and I have begun to pray with Luke and Gracie because we believe that one of the greatest gifts we can give to them as parents is to be models of lives founded on prayer. At some point in their lives, for Luke and Gracie, prayer will become incredibly important. Prayer will be the way in which they communicate with God. Prayer will be the the way in which they garner strength and support for the difficulties and trials of life. Nothing will be more important in the lives of Luke and Gracie than prayer. That's why we're already beginning to model a life of prayer to them. Julie and I have a problem, though, a problem that most of you who are parents can, can identify with. We are far from perfect models of prayer. <laughs> we don't pray nearly as much as we know we should. We often get busy, we get distracted, and prayer gets neglected. When we do pray, it's often rushed, it's often shallow. Uh, We don't always see a lot of power in our prayers. Sometimes our prayers don't seem to change things. I I think for Julie and I, and for many of us in this room, parents and non-parents alike, we suffer from weak and ineffective prayer lives. So if we're going to be models of prayer to our kids, what we need is a model ourselves. We need a model to follow. We need a model who can show us how to overcome the the weaknesses and the distractions and the lies that plague our prayer lives. 
There's no better model to go to than Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we continue this series of sitting at the feet of Jesus. We are going to look at the prayer life of Jesus. We're not so much going to look at the actual prayers of Jesus. We'll do that more next week. We'll study the Lord's Prayer next week when we come back from Matthew chapter 6. This week we're going to look not so much at his words, but at his actions and attitudes and beliefs that undergirded his prayer life. We're going to look at a lot of verses that you probably haven't studied in the past, just minor verses that you kind of skip over, but that are really, really significant. They reveal to us the attitudes, the habits, the beliefs that Jesus' prayer life was founded upon. Now, let me say from the very beginning, the purpose of this sermon is not to heap guilt upon you. That's the danger of a sermon on prayer. None of us pray as much as we know we should. It's very easy when we hear a sermon on prayer to feel guilty. That's not the goal here. The goal is not that you would walk out of here feeling guilty. That's not what prayer is about. Jesus never prayed out of guilt or out of a sense of obligation. He prayed out of a sense of privilege. For for Jesus, prayer was a wonderful thing, an incredible thing. So the goal this morning as we look at the prayer life of Jesus is not that we would discover guilt, but that we we would discover motivation that we would walk out of here with a fresh sense of the power and privilege that prayer is, that we would walk out of here with a new, fresh motivation to walk in the steps of Jesus in the realm of prayer. That's the goal. So this morning, as we go through the Gospels, we are going to discover four observations from Jesus' prayer life. Let's jump right in. Four observations that we want to notice. The first is is that as we look at the prayer life of Jesus, we see very clearly he often let prayer trump sleep. It's the first thing I want you to observe from the prayer life of Jesus. He often let prayer trump sleep. Here's one example, Mark 135, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. I'll be honest with you, Mark 135 is not on my list of favorite verses in the Bible. I actually don't like this verse at all. I am not a morning person. I don't think it's natural to wake up when it's still dark outside. I don't like it at all. Uh, Every other week I I meet with the elders up here and I have to wake up at 5.45 a.m. to do that. And and let me tell you, 5.45 a.m. is a hateful time of the day to me. It is not natural. We should not be waking up at 5.45. I hate it. So this is a very convicting verse to me. That Jesus woke up that early, that he sacrificed sleep to go pray. That's incredible to me. But wait a minute. You, You look at this and you say, well, maybe Jesus is a morning person. Maybe he just liked waking up early, so he was up, so he went off and prayed. Is that the deal? Well, then we encounter this passage in Matthew. Jesus has been ministering all day to thousands of people, teaching them and healing them. Right before this account, he miraculously feeds the 5,000, and then we read this. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone, and in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. So Jesus has just had this incredibly long day of ministry. The sun's going down. It's evening. He sends the crowds away. And then what does he do? He goes up on the mountain to pray. And how long does he pray? Until the fourth watch of the night. That's 3 to 6 a.m. Jesus prayed all night. He prayed all through the late hours of the night. And if that's not convicting enough, we have this incredible passage in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer. This is the night before Jesus chose his 12 disciples. So Jesus has this huge decision coming up. He's got to choose his 12 men. And, you know, I'm thinking if I have a big decision to make tomorrow, what am I going to make sure to do? Get a good night's sleep. Not Jesus. If he can only pick between sleep and prayer, if he can only have one of those, prayer wins. 
He sacrifices sleep for the sake of spending all night in prayer with the Father before making this huge and significant decision. Throughout the prayer life of Jesus, he let prayer trump sleep. Jesus was not a morning person. He was not a night person. Jesus was simply a person who believed in the power of prayer. To Jesus, prayer offered more power, more strength, more refreshment even than sleep. Sleep's a great thing. Prayer is better in the life of Jesus. Now, Jesus sacrificing sleep for the sake of prayer, it's more remarkable to me when I realize a couple things about Jesus, about who this man is. Uh, It's more remarkable when I notice, number one, we're talking about the creator here. He knows better than any of us how important sleep is to the human body. He designed it that way. He put our bodies together. Jesus knows exactly how much we need sleep. And he was subject to that same limitation. When he came to earth, yes, he's fully God, but he took on all of our humanity, subjected himself to the same limitations. He knew how much his body needed sleep. And yet he willingly gave it up for the sake of prayer. Second thing that's remarkable to me is that we're talking about God here. We're talking about Jesus who is God, who has limitless, infinite power at his disposal. He is wise beyond measure. He knows all things. He understands all things. He never sinned. He never even came close to sin. And yet he spent all this time in prayer. And then you compare that to me. I am limited. I am finite. I am a creature. I have very little power at my disposal. I'm in constant need. I've struggled with sin since the day I was born. I have so much more need of the power that comes through prayer than Jesus did, and yet I spend so much less time in prayer than he did. Rather than letting prayer trump sleep, I often do the opposite. I don't know if you can identify with this. I often have very busy days. I don't get around to prayer like I know I should. And so night has come, I'm getting into bed, and I realize, man, I have a lot of stuff I need to pray about today. And so I, I, I lay down and I go before the Lord and I say, okay, Lord, I, I need to spend some time in prayer with you. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for your son. Lord, I pray that tonight you give us good rest. I, Lord, oh, Lord, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank, thank you so much for your son. Lord, I pray, pray that, and then boom, I'm out. Prayer's over. Sleep one again. For me, sleep often trumps prayer. For Jesus, it was the opposite. Now, Jesus slept a lot. He, he knew he needed to sleep. But when he could only pick one between sleep and prayer, Jesus made sure that prayer won. Sleep is an incredibly important thing. Our bodies desperately need sleep. Sleep is awesome. Take it from a father of twins who doesn't get nearly enough. Sleep is wonderful. It's incredibly important. And yet prayer is better. Prayer gives your body and soul more power, strength, and refreshment than sleep does. That's why Jesus often let prayer Trump sleep. Now again, the purpose of observing this from Jesus' prayer life is not guilt. I'm not trying to heap guilt upon you. The application of this point is not to wake up at 4 a.m. tomorrow and pray out of a sense of guilt. Jesus never prayed out of guilt or obligation. The application of this point is to realize the privilege that prayer is. Prayer is better than sleep. It is more valuable to you than sleep. That's what Jesus reveals to us. That's motivation to prayer. We, to pray. We need it more than we need sleep. Prayer is an incredible thing, an incredible priority in our lives. It's the first thing we observe in the prayer life of Jesus. Second observation I want us to make is that throughout the Gospels, Jesus demonstrates a love for praying in the wilderness. We saw that in the verses in Matthew and Mark. He withdraws to a secluded place. It's summarized in the book of Luke. It says in chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. 
He would often do this. This was a habit of Jesus's prayer life. Now we know Jesus often prayed in public. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed in many different places. But what this is telling us is that Jesus's favorite place to pray, the place he went when he had a big decision, when he was under stress, when things were difficult, he went to the wilderness to pray alone. Now let me explain something to you from this verse. Wilderness here doesn't mean desert. Jesus didn't go out into the desert to pray on a regular basis. Did that a couple times, but, but not on a daily basis. Wilderness here, what this is talking about, in ancient Israel, uh, everybody lived together in these little towns that were separated some miles from each other. They lived in these towns for the sake of security, safety, convenience, and commerce. They, couldn't, they didn't have cars, so they all lived together. Uh, but the space in between the towns, no one lived there. It was just fields. And so Jesus could stand in the middle of his village and literally walk a half mile any direction And he was in the wilderness. He was in a secluded space. He was alone. He was free of distraction. He was able to be alone with God half mile in any direction. Now, it's changed for us a little bit today, hasn't it? I can't walk a half mile any direction and be in the wilderness. I can't walk a half mile and be outside of my neighborhood. I have to go a lot further than that. It's a little different for us today to find wilderness. Yet we can apply this principle too. I have a couple wilderness spots I go to on a regular basis. First is a swing on my back porch. Second is my shower. Both of those are wilderness spots to me, and here's why. These both qualify as wilderness because both on the porch swing and in the shower, I am alone and free of distraction. I can pray with focus. I can pray with devotion. That's why both of those for me qualify as wilderness spots. I'm not hearing the phone ring. I'm not getting emails. I can be alone with the Lord free of distraction. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't yet have a wilderness spot, you don't yet have some place that you can go to and be alone with the Lord, free of distraction, then my application for you is very simple. I want you this week to go find your wilderness spot. Find the place where you can go and be alone with the Lord, free of distraction. Now, for some of you, your wilderness spot is going to be in your house. I had a friend in college. She lived with a a bunch of roommates, and, and it was always crazy in the house. It was always loud. So for her, her wilderness spot was her closet. She would go into the closet, shut the door, and be alone with the Lord. That's the only place she could be free of distraction and spend devoted time with the Lord in prayer. For some of you, your wilderness spot's going to be outside. It's going to be in your backyard like me, or it's going to be a park down the street. It's going to be a golf course. For some of you, your wilderness spot's going to be going for a walk or a jog or a drive in your car. Sometimes motion can clear our minds so that we can focus upon the Lord. I don't know where your wilderness is, but you need to find one. You need to have a place where you can go and be alone with the Lord, free of distraction. Once you find your wilderness spot, I would challenge you to frequent it. Spend time on a regular basis in your wilderness spot. Now, this is the reason why Estes Park, Colorado is not going to work for us. Estes Park, Colorado is breathtakingly beautiful, but we can't go there a couple times a week. (laughs) So that's not going to work. You need some place you can go to on a regular basis, a couple times a week at least, to be alone with the Lord free of distraction. So find your wilderness spot, frequent your wilderness spot, and then finally protect your wilderness spot. You need to protect it. You need to protect it from these guys. You need to protect it from cell phones and electronic devices. These cell phones can be such a blessing to us. They can help us in so many ways. But uh, for many of us, if we're honest with each other, the prayer life of Jesus, this devoted, focused, powerful prayer life is a pipe dream for a lot of us because we're chained to one of these. We cannot escape the constant 
phone calls, text messages, email messages, YouTube videos, Facebook updates, tweets that are constantly bombarding us. We live in a world of 24-7 constant distraction, information and media and communication constantly coming to us. If we're not careful, it will enslave us. It will keep us so distracted on a moment-by-moment basis that we cannot think clearly for an hour at a time. We, we cannot spend dedicated, devoted time in prayer because we're so distracted. Now, there is good news. I have checked. I have verified this. All of these devices come with one of these, an off button. You can use it. You can turn them off. When you get alone with the Lord, I challenge you, turn the phone off. Turn the electronic devices off. Unplug from this limitless stream of information that is bombarding us. Step outside of it for a minute. Get away from the distraction and spend quality time with the Lord. Little illustration from Youth Impact. Ryan Pale took his college leaders out for a retreat earlier this year. And during the first three hours of the retreat, they go out uh, into the country. Um, Ryan shocked his leaders. Said that for the first three hours, they had to keep their phones off. And they, they were frustrated at that. They were angry at that. For many of these kids, they, they had not had their phone off in months, if not years. They had constantly been receiving all these updates all the time. They could not fathom the thought of turning it off. What if somebody calls me? What if I get a text message? I can't turn it off. But Ryan's bigger. He won the day. He told him, turn the phones off. They turn them off. They go out in the woods. And what did they find? That it was Awesome. That it was incredible to live life free of the slavery of the phone. It was wonderful to turn their phones off and just spend time alone with God in the woods. They had this time undistracted to pray and go before the Lord. Many of them came back to Ryan and said, hey bro, three hours isn't enough. Can we leave our phones off? Sure, of course you can. They found that when they unplugged from the distraction of this noisy world, that they found refreshment and energy in their relationship with the Lord. One of my favorite books is written by a guy named Eugene Patterson. And in it, he warns us about the price that we pay for our busyness, for our distraction. He says, I can be active and pray. I can work and pray, but I cannot be busy and pray. I cannot be inwardly rushed, distracted, dispersed. Usually for prayer to happen, there must be a deliberate withdrawal from the noise of the day, a disciplined detachment from the insatiable self. That's what Jesus' example is all about. We live in in an incredibly noisy world, constantly bombarding us. The only way that we can spend quality time with the Lord in the wilderness is if we withdraw and remove ourselves from those distractions. Let me sum this point up. What Jesus is teaching us is that every one of us needs a wilderness, a place where we can go and be alone with the Lord, free of distraction. Once you find your, your wilderness, frequent it. Go there at least a couple times a week to spend quality time with the Lord and protect your wilderness. Don't let these amazing devices that now populate our lives, don't let them enslave you. Turn them off. Spend quality time with the Lord. It's the second observation we make from the prayer life of Jesus. He loved to withdraw to the wilderness. Third observation I think we see in the prayer life of Jesus is that Jesus persevered in prayer. Turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at a parable at Jesus' teaching about perseverance in prayer. And let, let me explain for a second what I mean by persevering in prayer. To persevere in prayer means that prayer for you is not a one-time event. When you have a need, when you have something that you are requesting of the Lord, you don't just offer it to the Lord one time and then go about your business. 
You, you repeatedly go to the Lord and ask him for that thing. You are repetitive. You go over and over again to the Lord with your request. That's what it means to persevere in prayer. Let's see what Jesus teaches us about perseverance in prayer, starting in chapter 18, verse 1. Now he, that is Jesus, was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out." The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for the elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? Let me explain this parable to you. Jesus is not comparing God to this wicked judge. They're completely different. That's the whole point of the parable. It's an argument from lesser to greater. If this awful, wicked judge is persuaded by the persistent pleading of this widow, how much more will God who is a loving, gracious, merciful father, be persuaded by our pleading, by our repeated requests that we make to him. Jesus' point is persevere in prayer. When there's something you need, take it to the Lord over and over again. Don't be meaninglessly repetitive, just repeating words, but sincerely repetitive. Take that request to him time and time again. I think many of us wonder, why does God not grant us the things that we request? There's many potential reasons. One of them is because we haven't yet persevered in prayer. We have not yet gone to the Lord enough to lift this request out, so he hasn't given it to us yet. Persevere in prayer. Now, Jesus didn't just teach us about perseverance in prayer. He exemplified it as well. He modeled it as well. Matthew 26, towards the end of the book of Matthew, turn there, Matthew 26, starting in verse 39. Jesus practiced perseverance in his own prayer life. We have this remarkable prayer from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night before he was arrested, Jesus goes before the Lord and he prays. Look with me starting in verse 39 of Matthew 26. And he, that is Jesus, went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And then he went away again a second time and prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy and he left them again and went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. But I want you to notice, Jesus is, he's making this request of God, God the Father, please spare me the pain of the cross. That's what this prayer is about. But what I want you to notice is, once is not enough for Jesus. He doesn't just ask God once to spare him the pain of the cross. He doesn't even ask it just twice. Three times he goes before the Lord with the same words, simple words, Father, please spare me the cross. If there's any other way, spare me the cross. Jesus practiced perseverance in his prayer life. Now, notice, um, God the Father did not grant this request, did he? No, God, God the Father led Jesus to the cross the next day. That's a reminder to us, God is not a slot machine, hit the lever often enough and you win. It's not how prayer works. It's not the point of this, of this example. The point here is to see how perseverance characterized Jesus' prayer life. When there was something that he needed, something that he desired, he took it to the Father over and over again. Once was not enough. 
Jesus' example in this chapter is actually really freeing to me. Sometimes I feel like when, I, when I'm stressed, when I'm busy, when I'm in pain, when I'm suffering, for some reason I'm tempted to believe that God will be persuaded if I bring him this eloquent prayer, this theologically deep prayer that I take and offer to him. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's just simple words uttered over and over again to the Father. That's freeing to me. To see that when I am in desperate need, I can just get on my knees and pray like a child. God, please help me over and over again. Some of you know when, when the twins were delivered, Julie had some complications. About 12 hours after the delivery, the doctors came in and they, they took Julie away to the intensive care unit. Her organs were shutting down. Uh, we didn't know if she was going to make it. I confess to you, there was nothing theologically deep coming to my mind at that time. I followed the cart down. I went to the little chapel there in the hospital. I sat down and I prayed like a child. God, please spare my wife. God, please heal Julie. I can't do this without her. Please heal my wife. Please, please, God, heal my wife. I just prayed that over and over again for hours and hours and hours until God answered and delivered her. And that was okay. God wasn't looking for some eloquent prose to be offered to him. God wasn't looking for something theologically deep to offer to him. Simple words repeated over and over again. Not meaningless repetition, not babble, but sincere, meaningful repetition. I persevered in that prayer hour after hour after hour. That's the kind of prayer that God loves. That's what he's looking for, for us to persevere in prayer. It's the third observation we see from the prayer life of Jesus. Fourth and final observation I want us to make from the prayer life of Jesus is that throughout the Gospels, he prayed as if he believed that eternity were at stake. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, we encounter these two theologically magnificent verses. John six forty four. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In these two verses, Jesus is revealing to us in no uncertain words that in the process of salvation, in the process of somebody coming into the family of God, God is absolutely sovereign. The way that a person is drawn into the family of God is that God chooses them, God chooses that particular individual and he moves them, he draws them to Christ, he opens their eyes to understand the gospel. If God chooses you, you will be saved, it's absolutely certain. We call this the doctrine of election, of predestination. Unfortunately, in the last 2,000 years of church history, many sincere believers and theologians have looked intently at the doctrine of election and drawn the logical conclusion. If God is sovereign over the process of, of salvation, if salvation is all by the election of God, and if God chooses you, you will be saved, and the logical conclusion is there's no reason to pray for the salvation of the lost. God is sovereign. It's in his hands. There's no reason to pray for the lost. He'll do as he sees fit. Well, that is a logical conclusion, but it's not a biblical conclusion. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 9 with me. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at the end of the chapter, verse 36. This is in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He's looking over at a crowd of thousands of people, and here's here's what we see, starting in verse 36. Seeing the people, he, that is Jesus, felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. 
This word in the NAS, beseech, is translating a Greek word that means to plead for something, to plead with someone to do something. So picture this, Jesus is looking at this crowd, this, these thousands of people who are lost, who have no hope spiritually, and what is his solution? Well, guys, hey, just rest in the sovereignty of God. No, oh, that's not his solution. What's his solution? Pray, pray for them. Don't just pray, plead for them. Plead that God will send forth evangelists and disciple makers into this crowd. Jesus prayed as if he believed that eternity were at stake. He prayed as if he believed that his prayers changed the eternal destinies of men and women. What Jesus is revealing to us is that in the mystery of prayer, God is absolutely sovereign, and yet our prayers are essential. In this mystery of salvation, God is sovereign and our prayers matter. Both are true. I can't explain that to you logically. Human logic can only pick one of those, but God is beyond our human logic. He is beyond our human reasoning. In his mind, his sovereignty and the power of our prayers fits together perfectly. And the mind of God, for reasons we'll never understand, he chose to make our prayers for the lost the means by which he draws them to salvation. God is absolutely sovereign, and yet our prayers really do matter. When I worked in the college ministry here, we had a a woman working for us named Renee Davis, now Renee Meyer. Uh, Late in life, Renee came to be a believer, and as soon as she did, she began to pray for the salvation of her father. Prayed for his salvation every day, every week, and every month, and every year. She prayed over and over again. She got many of us on staff to join her in praying for the salvation of her dad. There was no fruit year after year. Nothing's changing. And then uh, months before Renee got married and moved halfway across the country, her dad calls her up and says, hey, guess what? The other day I accepted Jesus as my savior. Crazy, out of the blue. He's a believer. It's amazing. In the process of his salvation, was he saved because God chose him? Or was he saved because Renee prayed for him? Both. It's not an either or. Both are true. In the mystery of salvation, he was saved because he was elect and he was saved because Renee was faithful to pray for him year after year after year. Jesus is teaching us that our prayers really do matter. That as we pray for the lost, heaven and hell are at stake. That our prayers change the eternal destinies of men and women. What Jesus is teaching us is pray for the lost. Don't give up praying for them. Even if there doesn't appear to be any fruit, keep praying for them day after day, month after month, year after year because your prayers matter. When you pray for the lost, heaven and hell are at stake. It really does matter. It's the fourth observation we see from the prayer life of Jesus. I want to draw this to a close now by giving us some application points. How can we apply these four observations to our lives? The first thing that we noticed about the prayer life of Jesus is that he often let prayer trump sleep. I think the lesson there, what Jesus is teaching us, is the priority of prayer. That whatever it takes, we need to carve out time in our day to spend with the Lord in prayer. I, I give you an ambitious goal. 20 minutes a day, I was told after the first service, somebody was, was very right. Maybe 20 minutes is a little too ambitious to start. But 20 minutes is where I want us to get. I want us to get where all of us are taking 20 minutes a day at least to spend with the Lord in prayer. That may be split up over the course of the day, five minutes here and there and there. Whatever it takes, do whatever it takes to make prayer a number one priority in your life. To carve out 20 minutes a day at least to spend with the Lord in prayer. Now all of us are busy I would venture to say that all of us have more things on our plate than we can accomplish in a given day. That means that to satisfy this application, 
to set aside time for prayer, you must be willing to sacrifice something else good. Sacrifice something even as important as sleep may mean that you gotta wake up 20 minutes earlier in the morning. For many of us, we won't have to give up something as important as sleep. We're gonna have to give up something of of lesser importance like entertainment. Uh, For many of us, we can find time to spend with the Lord in prayer if we'll cut back a bit on TV or internet or video games or reading books. Just cut back a little bit so that we can have time with the Lord in prayer. For many of us, we have easy time. All we have to do is when we're in the car, uh, just turn the radio off. Just turn the radio off and spend time alone and quiet with the Lord. Do whatever it takes to carve out time in your schedule to be with the Lord in prayer. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but because prayer is a privilege. Prayer gives you more energy, strength, and power than sleep. It's that important. Number one priority in your life. Second application, the second thing we observe from Jesus' prayer life is that he loved to pray in the wilderness to withdraw. And I just repeat that application again. If you don't yet have a wilderness spot, a place where you can go and be alone with the Lord, free of distraction, find it this week. Find your wilderness, frequent it, and protect it from distraction. Third observation we made is that Jesus persevered in prayer. That once was not enough for Jesus. If he had something significant, he didn't just take it to the Lord one time, but he took it over and over and over again. He practiced perseverance in his prayer life. We need to do the same thing. We need to learn to persevere in prayer. Let me give you a tool that someone gave to me that has been very helpful in the course of my life to learn perseverance. It's, it's called a prayer calendar. There's nothing magical about this. You just take a blank sheet of paper Divide it in seven columns for the seven days of the week, and then you just begin to list out the things that you want to be praying for on a regular basis. That's going to include a lot of stuff. It's going to include you. It's going to include your family, your friends. It's going to include your church, the ministries of the church. It's going to include physical needs like restoration and health and healing. It's going to include things like missionaries and ministries going on all over the place. It's going to include our, our government, our troops. You just pray. Everything goes on the list. Just pick a day and put it there. You balance it out. And then as you go through your week, you pull this out, and each day you pray for these things and then anything else that comes to mind. If you'll do this, what you will do is you'll be repeating these prayer requests at least once a week. Everything gets prayed for at least once a week. You are beginning to persevere in prayer. Now, eventually you won't need the calendar. you'll, You'll develop a habit of this. You can set it aside and simply practice perseverance in your prayer life. So really, if If you struggle to persevere in prayer, make one of these today. Simple chart, simple piece of paper in your journal, just boom, write out. Pray for these things Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It will help you grow to pray like Jesus. Fourth observation we made from the prayer life of Jesus is that he prayed as if eternity were at stake. I think what we can learn from that is the value of praying for the lost in our lives. Now, uh, there's a lot of people who don't know the Lord, so let's keep this simple, let's keep this doable. I challenge you to choose three people in your life family members, relatives, friends, co-workers, uh, classmates who don't yet know the Lord, choose those three people who are close to you and begin to pray for their salvation at least once a week. Put them on your prayer calendar so that every week you are praying for the salvation of all three of those people. If we as a body will begin to do that, that's the kind of prayer God hears and God answers. I believe that many people in our community will come to know the Lord if we will be faithful to pray for the lost on a repeated basis. Now, I would imagine as I give you this application already, some faces are popping in your mind, some people who are in your life who don't yet know the Lord that you can begin to pray for. I want to end the service by giving you a chance to do that right now. I'm going to lead us through prayer, and in the middle of the prayer, I'm going to give you a moment of silence so that you can pray for your three, the three people in your life who don't yet know the Lord. Ask the Lord to to draw them to himself for salvation and ask the Lord to give you an opportunity 
to share the gospel with them even this week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for prayer. I know for many of us, myself included, when we talk about prayer, it's easy to feel guilty. It's easy to feel like prayer is an obligation. Lord, I just thank you from the example of Jesus for reminding us that prayer is not in any sense an obligation. It is a privilege. Thank you that you, the King and Creator and Sovereign of the universe, would care to hear from us. That you would care to listen to what we say. Thank you so much that prayer matters, that you hear our prayers, that you value our prayers, that you even act upon our prayers. I pray that every one of us, Lord, would walk out of here with a renewed sense of motivation to dedicate time to prayer. I pray that we'd be faithful to that, that we would do it out of joy and a sense of privilege. Lord, we, we lift up one particular type of prayer, praying for the lost, Lord. We, we look with wonder at the fact that for reasons known only to you, you have chosen to make our prayers a means by which you draw men and women to salvation. So right now, as we take a moment of silence, Lord, we pray that you would act upon our prayers and draw many to your son. Right now, pray for those three in your life who don't yet know Jesus. Lord, please do draw each of these people to your son Jesus for salvation. Open their eyes, remove the veil so that they might see the beauty and truth of the gospel. Lord, we pray that we would walk out of here changed people, that we would grow to be more like your son, that prayer would become a more central part of our lives. Help us to become models of fervent, powerful, devoted prayer to all whom we meet. Thank you most of all for your son Jesus who died for us, who makes prayer possible. It's in his name that we pray, amen. All right, next week we'll be looking at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter six. You can read ahead. See you then.